Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the things that we say on this show are not reflective of Howard County Community College's views on things, and anything we say of a legal nature is not intended to provide specific legal advice. If you have a legal situation, please contact a lawyer and make sure that they know all of the facts and can assess it for you, rather than taking anything on this show as being how you should conduct yourself and what you should do. We have the privilege of having Jerry Buting back for another segment today. Jerry, uh, one of the protagonists of Making a Murderer, along with Dean Strang, and author of a book, Illusion of Justice, which I have found quite fascinating. And many people I know when they dig into it are interested in the parts of it that concern Making a Murderer. But there's a good deal more in that book other than Making the Murderer stuff. Isn't that true? It is. That's very much true. Part of it is making a criminal defense attorney. and It's sort of a memoir of how and why I do what I do, how I, how I got into this career, what I like about the career. But it also talks about a lot of other cases I've had where, where similar flaws in the criminal justice system that were illustrated by making a murderer, uh, I've experienced in other cases throughout my career, fascinating cases, some of them. One of the ones that intrigues me the most in the book is the so-called Armstrong case. Right. Could you give a brief synopsis of the facts of the Armstrong case? It has a long evolution, but if you could do that, please. Sure. And, uh, you know, we could spend easily a half hour or more just on this this one case. It's a a complicated, fascinating case. But in 1980, a co-ed is found murdered in her apartment. In Madison, Wisconsin. In Madison, Wisconsin. And for for several months, nobody was charged, and there was all this, you know, understandable fear and concern. But it turns out what they end, ended up doing is they charged my client, Ralph Armstrong. I was not involved. I wasn't even a lawyer in 1980. But coincidentally, uh, it ended up being this big, high-profile trial. And coincidentally, my my wife, uh, who was then just a law student, actually attended some of the trial. Interesting. And watched it. So my client was charged, and his connection to the co-ed was that his fiance and the victim were, were close friends. And they had, in fact, been partying with a group of other people the night before, and, suddenly, and they were, had plans to go water skiing. Suddenly she, find, uh, she ends up murdered, um, laying naked face down on her bed with blood all over And um, my client is charged in large part because of a witness who was at a neighboring building sitting out on a porch who could not identify him initially and only identified Ralph Armstrong after going through a hypnosis session in which he was shown a picture of Ralph Armstrong and no one else. And uh, ultimately, he was convicted. It went on appeal. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ultimately it was, it became a landmark case. They said, you know, Witnesses who are hypnotized are very suggestive. Um, you can't do what happened in this case. Henceforth and forever, not evermore, you must follow blah, 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 all these guidelines. So they threw out the conviction, right? Not in his case. Well, what? They didn't. They said, but in this case, in Ralph's case, we're saying that nevertheless, despite the fact you can actually hear the detective sitting in the room. They did record it. So you actually get to see the uh, hypnosis session, but you can hear the, the detective when the witness is describing the, who the suspect is, you can hear the detective saying, the suspect's taller. The suspect's taller. I, I yeah. am astonished that appellate courts don't 
remedy these things. You and would the think only so. real way to remedy it is to throw out the convictions or to send them back to be retried. You would, you would hope so. And um, that gets into a broader issue about what's wrong with our appellate system. Where we'll we, get there. Where we'll we focus there. more on finality of the judgments than sure. we do on actual innocence. Uh, so then they do a lineup after this guy's been hypnotized, hypnotized. And this is 1980. If anybody was alive back then, long-haired people were not in short supply. And my client had long hair. But somehow or another, the police couldn't find fillers that had long hair. And so they used these wigs. They used cops with real short hair, put wigs on them, and tried to do a lineup that way. It was laughable. When you look, if anybody sees this today, would, would so laugh So is the lineup court. itself filmed as well? Or how do you know about The lineup, that? there were still photos taken. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that also became an issue. So years go by, and he's, he gets life, basically without parole, and has some supporters who believe he's innocent all along. And he starts doing one of the early cases to, to do DNA tests. Okay. And one so of, I gather there was DNA at the scene that somehow implicated him? Well, there was, uh, yes, there was semen stain on a bathrobe belt that was type A secretor. Okay. And, and what's the significance of the bathrobe belt? Well, it was crumpled on the, on the floor right next to her body. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the bathrobe it was. The bathrobe belt was laying across her. Okay. And the original semen stain at trial was on the bathrobe, crumpled okay. on the floor. Obviously, the killer had handled it. He had taken out the bathrobe belt and had used it to strangle her. Oh, gosh. And on the bathrobe belt, there were two long head hairs, which hair comparison testimony, these expert witnesses came in and said that they were consistent or similar to Ralph Armstrong. In the closing argument, the prosecutor said, those are Ralph Armstrong's hairs on her that belt, and the only way they could be there is if he's the killer. And So can, can I ask you something about that, just as a trial lawyer myself? That if that happened in a civil case, even though it's their closing argument, I would get up and go crazy, and the judges, for the most part, would say, you can't say that. And I, is that something that goes on in criminal practice in Wisconsin? Had somebody, did somebody object, first of all? And I don't believe they did, or okay. if they did, it was overruled, and the okay. judge said, this is closing Just argument. argument. The jury, the jury like. Exactly. The jury is, is to rely on their collective memories of what the actual testimony was of the experts. And this was before DNA. This is 1980. And so all they had was type A, ABO. You know the old blood so the types. blood types, yeah, yeah, and but so was, was there a matching blood type? There in this was case? a type A. He was my client was type A, but so was her boyfriend. So how prevalent is type A? Do you have a sense of that? It's very prevalent. It was something like I don't remember the details to be honest. Type O was the most yeah. common, but type A is it was pretty common too. Okay. So he gets DNA and he tests the semen that's found, the type A. And this ABO. is when he's in prison. Somehow. This is when he's been in prison. He's been in prison now. This is around 1990. So he's been in prison nine or 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And the DNA excludes him. He is not the source of the semen that's on the bathrobe. Belt. Okay. And so then he, he's well, surely representing that got him released, himself. Right? Well, at that point, he writes to the Innocence Project in New York, Barry Shecks and Peter Neufeld's firm. And, uh, Barry, who I knew as a, a friend and a professional colleague, calls me and says, you know, Jerry, we got this, this case. It's a pretty circumstantial, weak case. There's this flaky eyewitness and this weird hypnosis. And, you know, we think there's other evidence we could test. Would you work with me on it? Okay, so this is 1993. Okay. Um, I didn't realize I would be signing on for 15 years of oh work pro bono on this case. 
Pro um, bono meaning free, in case free. of those of you don't know. Yeah. So we did some more testing, and we discovered that these head hairs were, in fact, not from him. They were ex He was excluded as a source. And how was, I mean, if head hair evidence is flaky, then how did you manage to exclude his head hair as evidence? Uh, because there's a, there's two ways you can use DNA on hairs. Okay. One is if there's a root attached, a little bit of tissue. Sure. You can do regular nuclear DNA that people are most familiar with. If not, you can do mitochondrial DNA, which tests DNA from the in the hair shaft itself. Okay, and uh, through those methods, they were able to exclude scientifically any possibility that Ralph Armstrong was the source. You would think that that would be grounds well, for a trial. Well, you keep knocking out pieces of evidence exactly. that I presume at trial accumulated to make a trail of evidence exactly. they used to convict exactly. Him. And when you add to that the, the highly suggestive hypnosis process, to the only other piece of evidence. So we file a motion for a new trial. It's denied at the trial court. We appeal to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals says, uh, we'd like to help you out here, but it's uh, we think there's this other Supreme Court case. Supreme case, Court of Wisconsin or Supreme Court of the United uh, States? Wisconsin. Okay. And the Court of Appeals said, actually, there's this other case that we decided, this is a little interesting connection, mm -hmm. called State versus Avery, which was Stephen Avery's first wrongful conviction. Oh, when he was, yeah. In which they changed the standard for newly discovered evidence and made it more difficult for a defendant. Of course they and the, did. And in, uh, the law is that a court of appeals cannot overrule another court of appeals in the same level. Okay. Only the Supreme Court of that state can overrule them. And so they affirmed it. We go to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and ultimately they reversed the conviction. And what year was that? 2005. Wow. Yeah. So when they reverse a conviction, does that mean it's over with, or nope. can he go back and get tried again? It means that they could go back and try him again. And Did they choose and, to? And the state decided, we want to test the evidence. We want to test more evidence before we decide. Okay. And so they then went through all of these DNA tests. They tested 60 other pieces of evidence, every single one of which excluded Ralph Armstrong. And surely they told you that. They did have to tell me that. Okay. But, but then what they also discovered was another, a new semen stain that was now found on the bathrobe belt. Okay. That was draped across her body, clearly handled by the killer. It excluded my client and it excluded her boyfriend. Okay. She was not known to have had any other sexual partners. So the likelihood, therefore, is that the source of that semen was the killer. Okay. I thought, this is it. Case is done. We go to court a month later, and they decide, nope, we still think he's guilty, and we're still going to try this case. So, so can I just ask you a question in terms of the, the trial? It, it seems like pieces of evidence are getting knocked out right and left. What, what were they going to rely on? Well, this is what happens, and in, 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 I don't know if they go to prosecutor school and learn this all over the country, but it, it, it really is, is commonplace where a piece of evidence that at trial, they told the jury supports a conviction. Right. If it later is proves not to because it ex excludes the defendant, it's sort of like, oh, well, it didn't have anything to do with the crime then. My bad. Yeah, my bad. And, oh, right. that hair hair could, you know, okay, so he's excluded from the head hairs. That doesn't matter. Hair can float. It could have come from somebody not the killer. So is, are the subsequent trial lawyers allowed to say the state argued this was dispositive previously and it sort of discredit the state's case? or is that um, I, I think so. I've never actually had one that's gone all the way to trial since then because okay. most of the time a prosecutor will, you know, if there's enough evidence, most prosecutors will, will choose not to go to trial. Sure, sure. Enough evidence of They innocence. don't want to lose a case that's going to get don't. a lot of headlines. So, But I was suspicious in this case. So I had 
I had obtained a court order that prevented the prosecution from touching the evidence, doing okay. anything with the evidence without first notifying us. And they complied with it for a while. But after we, they, they announced they were going to retry this case, I told the court, well, it's time for the defense to start doing some tests. And we want to test. And I, I told the court, because the court doesn't know any of this until you come there and explain it. Sure. I said, there's a new semen stain that points to the killer. And, you know, they developed a pr partial profile. We have, through the Innocence Project, uh, access to the world's best scientists. And we think we can develop that and find the real killer. It's exculpatory evidence. And the judge said, fine, you know, go ahead, make some arrangements to do that and see what state it is. Two days later, I discovered, not for some, quite some time, the prosecutor violated the court order, ordered the detective to remove the bathrobe belt, which is an exhibit in the clerk's office, send it to the crime lab to do a different kind of test, which destroyed it. So surely the prosecutor went to jail for a crime, right? One would wonder. Instead, when we discovered that that happened, we then filed a motion. There's a, there's a whole lot more in the book I discuss about how all this happened and how part of the reason it's in the book is because I was representing him at the same time the Stephen Avery case was going on. Sure. And in, in fact, I got a tip during the Avery trial, and somebody sends me an email and says, you know, they were in Texas watching this online. Uh, online live because it was being streamed. Even then, the Avery case was a big high-publicity case. And they said, I, I see you're also representing Ralph Armstrong. I have some information that's very important. And I was getting a lot of kooks writing me throughout that trial. Sure. And so luckily I didn't just you know, dispense with them, off, blow yeah. them off. Uh, because later it proved, out, proved to be the lead that another individual had confessed to the murder. You're talking about in, in not in Avery, but not in, in the Avery Armstrong. in the Armstrong case. So somebody had confessed in the Armstrong case. Yep. And, and how did this person know, or do you even know to this day? Um, they were acquaintances of his, and so this was. Thir it turns out, 13 years earlier, somebody had confessed, and had given graphic details about what he did. And what's more shocking is, one of them. There are two women that heard this tracked down which case he was talking about, called the Madison, Wisconsin prosecutor's office, talked to the very same prosecutor that had been on the case and who had 13 years later violated the court order and destroyed the exculpatory evidence. That person has to be disbarred. Well, that person retired at the ah. time I discovered all this. But when I presented all this evidence to the court, ultimately... I won a very, very difficult type of motion, which is a motion to dismiss for governmental misconduct. On the, it, it's based on a due process theory that if the government, the courts cannot be party to a deliberate misconduct by the government that is trying to pervert justice. So let me ask you a question. In your, how many cases do you think you've had, criminal cases have you handled? Hundreds? Thousands? Yeah, it's, it, I have no idea. How prevalent is prosecutorial misconduct? It's certainly not the majority of cases. I think the, the vast majority of prosecutors are, are genuine, you know, sincere servants who are, are trying to do justice. Ethical. Ethical, but not all. And the problem is, back to the Armstrong case for a minute, so you would think that there would be some remedy, but it turns out, or at least for Ralph, so ultimately right. he's released from, from prison after 29 years in custody. He <sighs> sues 
to try and get get recompense for sues that. Sues the prosecutor or the prosecutor's the prosecutor, office or everybody under the he sun? He sued the prosecutor personally. He sued the crime lab who violated the, the court order that they knew about it too to destroy the evidence. And um, But there's something called absolute immunity. You know, we have discussed immunity on this program before. Right. We, we've never talked about absolute. Tell us what absolute immunity is. All right. So absolute immunity is where a uh, it applies to judges, it applies to prosecutors, and interestingly enough, it applies to witnesses in a trial. If uh, a prosecutor, and there's been a little crack in it, where the, and, and it's a judge-created principle. It's no, one, no legislature has ever passed this law. These were activist conservative judges. Who, so is this the highest court in the state has, has the blessed The United this, States or? Supreme Court has created this, created this idea of absolute immunity on the theory that a prosecutor and a judge should not be sued for, for conduct they're doing while they're acting in that role because it would chill them from the legitimate exercise of their duties. And while that has some validity to it, I can understand I, that. I can understand that. Uh, the problem is it also applies when, when, in this instance, a prosecutor deliberately violates a court order and is still immune. From so what, what is civil, the, what's the redress for that? Well, the redress is that we need, we need to change the law. As legislators, we need legislators in your individual states, they need to change the law. And so, for instance, we have this rule called Brady. Brady versus Maryland. Again, it is a court-made rule from the United States Supreme Court. And they don't want to go so far as to say that there's a constitutional right by a defendant to have discovery of the prosecution's case. When we talk about discovery, the prosecution has to give information that is exculpatory That's right. to defense counsel. So, you know, they might not otherwise have... Right. resources to investigate and arrive at it on, on right. So own. when we're talking about this, we're saying that the prosecution has an obligation to provide to defense counsel information that is exculpatory for the defendant. In other words, information that might lead to the defendant not being seen as being guilty or information that even can show other people might hypothetically guilt be guilty. Is that right? Or even to mitigate punishment. Yes. Okay. Um, so you know, the idea being that, you know, it's unfair if the prosecution knows evidence that might point towards the defendant's innocence to not share that with the defense. The problem is there's, it's a toothless rule because there's, if a prosecutor is unethical and wants to hide evidence from the defense, they can do it and it's rarely discovered. Or if it is, it's years later, like in the case I gave as an example, 13 years later on a fluke because I happen to be doing this other high-profile trial, a witness sees me and contacts me. And then when they're caught, there's no remedy to them because you can't sue them for I mean, violating I would presume it. that you, as an officer of the court, could go to the state bar or the state grievance commission or something and say this prosecutor behaved unethically and withheld information that resulted in my client being in jail for 29 years kind of thing. You could, but then you would face the lawyer regulation boards that unfortunately do not act in most cases of prosecutorial misconduct. There's a very few exceptions. Somebody in California did a study of all of the cases that the Court of Appeals or their Supreme Court reversed for prosecutorial misconduct, and in none of them was the prosecutor ever disciplined ethically. So, I mean, the, the problem is now California has recently changed the law. They had a big scandal in Orange County where it turns out that there were, the Orange County Jail had this network of jailhouse informants, snitches that were deliberately 
I um, remember. agents of the government, and they'd hit it for, for like 10 years. And it became such an issue, the legislature passed a law that now made it a felony for a prosecutor to withhold evidence that's exculpatory. Some people say, well, who's going to prosecute the prosecutors? Special um, counsel. Well, you could. Or I think you need to open up the civil system. You need to remove absolute immunity that would incentivize personal injury lawyers to sue on contingent fee basis. And, you know, if there have been a few exceptions where if a if prosecutor is acting not as a prosecutor in court, but still working with in an investigative capacity with the police, advising them to do this, that, or the other thing, you can sue them. And same thing with crime lab people. And so there's a case out of Nebraska that has been up and down in the courts a million times. A jury gave a verdict. A, a crime lab guy actually planted blood in these suspects. You know, that trunk. smacks of a famous case that's part it of does. a television series. It does. It happens. People, yeah. Cops do plant blood. It's very hard to catch them, but they did catch this guy. How and on earth did they catch him? Do you know? I don't remember the details yeah. of how they caught him, yeah. but, but they actually did prosecute him, and he went to prison for three or six years, something like that. And then they, they sued the county, and there's something like a $30 million judgment. Wow against the county that is a very rural county, very much like Stephen Avery was doing to Manitowoc County. Sure. And uh, they're debating whether they're going to go bankrupt because of it. Um, I think we need more of those kinds of judgments to to chill prosecutors from misconduct and police from misconduct. It does kind of harken back to something you were talking about earlier in a segment on the previously recorded show about the importance of elections and electing ethical prosecutors. And and I think the problem, as I was saying, we, I think, have two great candidates here in Howard County, but when you're running for prosecutor, it's law and order and, you know, I'll, I'll keep you safe. And there's no discussion of ethics. And there's no way, I think, to effectively get across to the voting populace, this person has behaved unethically previously or, you know, this kind of thing. And I wonder if you have any insider suggestions in how prospective voters could look at candidates and, and differentiate, like the guy in Philadelphia you're going to be on the performance with tomorrow night. You know, it, it's difficult when it comes to somebody's maybe reputation. Are they unethical or ethical? Because there, there's not, first of all, a lot of lawyer regulation uh, boards in various states. The complaints are confidential, and it's only when they get to a certain stage where there's actually a public reprimand or censure, like a suspension or a revocation sure. of their license, that anybody can ever find out. Similar to doctors, you know, until they're actually reported to the medical boards. It's it's hard to find their kind of— It's even hard to find it then, I can <clears throat> assure you. Sure. But I don't want to focus just on the ethics because it's a, it's a broader human problem, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The prosecutor in the Ralph Armstrong case that I was talking about, you would think that he was the you know the sleaziest, unethical prosecutor. You would you would think you would put him in a category of special prosecutor Ken Kratz. I was just going to invoke <laughs> him, but I thought I'd let you. Um, but you would be wrong because yeah. the prosecutor that was involved in that kind of misconduct was at her reputation of being a a nice guy, straight a reasonable, shooter. a straight shooter. So why did he do something like that in this case? And, and it's because there's a human element in our justice system that we have to always be cognizant of. And that's why we have all these rules and due process to restrain the human failings that we, that we all have. In his instance, and I think you see it in a lot of other cases, 
he had bonded with the victim's family. Now, I, I'm surmising some of this. Okay. Uh, um, I don't really know what motivated him, but I can see the human element of this. You bond with the victim's family, and then 10, 15 years later, you learn some information that you may have convicted the wrong guy and the killer went free. It's a hard thing to come to, to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and say, I'm sorry, but you know the, the killer of your daughter is still out there. We, On the I other hand, it. if you know who it is because a witness has told you he confessed, you can really do right by Mr. Armstrong and you can go get the guy, who I presume was ultimately charged and convicted. Nope. What? The guy was actually deceased. I there's some stuff in the I, I'll save for the book for okay. for our listeners for, for the listeners to uh, read. Which, by the way, you don't have to buy. I'm not trying to sell. I mean, you can also get it. It's in libraries all over the place. Um, but it's very interesting story. And what's the name of the book again? I'm sorry. It's called Illusion of Justice: Inside okay. Making a Murderer and America's Broken System. Okay. And so there's there's a lot of very interesting epilogues there. But but I think what what happens is prosecutors then they, they delude themselves, self-denial uh, in the face of evidence. Again, it's this cognitive bias tunnel vision where you just reject, you fix on a theory, you got the right guy, he's in prison for 10 years, 20 years, you do, you will ignore all other evidence that points otherwise, and sometimes you are tempted to break the rules in order to maintain your theory. That is, I think, the human element that happens. I just, you know, it's very perturbing to me that they knew about who the killer was many years before your guy got released. That's just appalling to me. And I really wonder if there's got to be some separation between the prosecutor who's responsible for prosecuting, and I recognize there's small prosecutor's offices, and the people who intake hypothetical information and investigate things. I mean, once you have him hearing this stuff, the bias that you talk about I, makes sense to me, however wrong it was. But I, Well, I think in part if you, if you strengthened defense discovery pr procedure. So in a civil case, if you, if you sue somebody, a doctor or whatever, you can bring them into, into an office, depose them under oath all day long and ask all kinds of questions. You know, did you ever hear a confession of somebody, somebody else who said they did this crime? Yeah. Um, you cannot do that in, in almost every state. There's three, maybe three states that allow depositions in criminal cases. So discovery is much more restricted in criminal cases where someone's life or liberty well, is at line. It seems ironic. It's when, not money. It's you're, exactly. you're being in jail for 29 years. Exactly. And so I think one of the reforms is we need to we need to open up the discovery process to allow the defense to ask these kinds of probing questions and get the answers even from a prosecutor or a police officer who's not willing otherwise unless you put them under oath to reveal it. And it's a hard thing to do on, on the witness stand at a trial, which is really what you effectively have to do to get that information and to tease it out. And I suspect they're very hesitant, to be honest. It is. And uh, there's another example in my book from the Avery case uh, for making a murder that you don't see. Um, but there's a, there's a very famous, now famous scene in making a murder where this, uh, this uh, sergeant calls in the license plate right. to the dispatch. And, and it's two days before the car or a day before the car is ever even found. Is he looking at the car or not? Well, we were able to impeach him with that radio recording because it wasn't a radio it was a telephone recording he instead of using the dispatch system which is recorded normally and accessible he called on his cell phone to the dispatcher and we only discovered that they had recorded all of these phone calls and it, it was almost like a watergate hearing where 
Alexander Butterfield? Butterfield reveals that there's a taping system in the Oval Office. I had this cop on the witness stand, and I was grilling him, and it, it's like, well, how are you so sure about this? And he's like, well, I listened to the, re the tape recordings to be sure. <laughs> what tape recordings? And then it came out that they had all these recordings that they had not turned over to us. So you shouldn't have to discover these things in the middle of a, of a court proceeding. If we'd had real discovery, we would, have, we would have been able to discover it before. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time in this segment, but I want to thank you, Jerry, and I hope that we will welcome. have you as a future guest again. I enjoyed it, and I'd love to do that. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.